Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, one of St. Joseph's first COVID-19 patients was cheered out of the hospital on Wednesday after beating the virus. She tells her story to us. That's going to be fascinating. Twelve new cases of the virus in the city yesterday. With an update, Paul Johnson will join the program. And what is Obamagate, and where did it come from? Donald Trump continues to mention this alleged scandal, but provides no evidence. Elliot Tepper will join us to give us some details about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. She is a survivor. Yesterday, one of St. Joseph's Hospital's first COVID-19 patients was applauded out of the hospital. And this is quite a story. 41 days since she entered the COVID-19 unit at St. Joseph's Hospital. Six COVID-19 tests are being released. And finally, finally, two negatives. And yes, day before yesterday, she was sent home. Finally. Helen Keene is her name. She's a warrior, she's a survivor, and she's with us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Helen, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Oh, good morning, Bill. Nice to be here. First and foremost, <laughs> nice how you home. feeling? Not bad. How are you feeling? Well, I'm dealing with a lot of fatigue and uh, weakness yet. Mm-hmm. Being in bed for 40 days, literally, yeah. uh, takes a lot out of you. And this virus seemed to attack wherever your weaknesses were, like whether it was your your lungs or your heart or your kidneys or whatever, it seemed to want to do its damage wherever the weak points were inside of you. This is a, an interesting story for those uh, that, uh, that don't know, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking with Helen about this, uh, because you know the system. I mean, you were a health care provider for many years, weren't you? I was for 12 years at Heritage Green Nursing Home, yes. So you know the routine, you know what goes on, and you, and you oh, were one of the people sure. that was comforting others, etc. And, and then yeah. all of a sudden you become a patient. That's that's kind of like turnaround, yeah. isn't it? It is. It is. It's very, very uh, interesting to be on the other end of it because you know what they are going through. You know what they're sacrificing. You know what, in, what it entails. You know, um, these people... <clears throat> Pardon me. These Take people your time. that come into work every day... To look after the elderly and the whoever, young, old, it doesn't matter. But they are putting their lives on the line, you know, and a lot of times they don't get the recognition that they should get. I'm so happy that, especially, and what a timing, Nurses Week, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is a time where we really need to, to focus on supporting them, too, and being there for the, for their needs as well. Well, and, and I'm glad that's happening. A couple of weeks ago, I had the, the premier on the program, and and you know we talked about long term care facilities like Heritage Green, where you used to work, and yeah. and. And, I, and it's problematic because there's a lot of stuff going on with government, and I don't want to draw you into the politics of it. But I said, you know, Mr. Premier, <laughs> I said, you've got to make this a priority. Now, his mother-in-law, as I'm sure you know, is, is a resident in one of these facilities, and she's in lockdown yeah. right now. Uh, and, and oftentimes political change happens when the people that are making those policies all of a sudden are impacted yeah. by this, and now he's being impacted this. And I'm, I'm, right. I'm sorry that it's happening, but maybe now we can have a, a full discussion about what's going on because you've seen what happens in these facilities. You worked yeah. in them. You know what the shortcomings are. And then you became a resident in one, and uh, it wasn't too long after that you started feeling ill. Yes, <clears throat> it didn't take very long uh, for me to realize that that I was in trouble. Um, it started with a really, really severe cough. Like I could not talk for two minutes without coughing or having a coughing spell. So. I went to my room and I self-isolated and it was Sonny, the <clears throat> the nurse at, at Cardinal. He came in the, the next morning and he said to me, Helen, he says, uh, you've had a fever through the night. You're, you're coughing nonstop. Uh, I really feel you should be going to the hospital, you know, and I, I just dreaded it because over the last two years, I've had so many hospital stays with my, my three-artery bypass surgery two years mm-hmm. ago, a staph infection. I was in for a week with it went into my blood, and just so many different things happened to me where I was in a hospital uh, setting. 
So I, I dreaded it. <laughs> I dreaded going. But did you but know in your heart of hearts that you had to go? I did. I yeah. did. For, you were feeling and, that and lousy. Yeah, and it wasn't, yeah. It wasn't just for me either. It was for everybody else in the retirement home. Like, you're, you're really aware of the fact that if you're carrying the virus, I mean, what's it going to do to everybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I, at, the, at the least, I want to know if I had it or not. I wanted and to find out if, if I had it. So you got transferred. You were taken down to the hospital. And, and by the yeah. way, I'm glad you mentioned your conditions I, uh, because we've always talked about people that are at higher risk. And uh, you're still a relatively right. young person. But, I mean, you've had some medical concerns, including uh, heart surgery, et cetera, which puts you into that category, doesn't it? That That's right. And that's why they took it so seriously. I believe that's one of the reasons they kept me as long as they did, too. I was on uh, heart monitor and being closely watched for about two and a half weeks. Um, they, you know, they monitored me and once they felt, I remember the doctor coming in the one day saying to me, Helen, I think you've turned the corner. He said, I think we're okay. (laughs) He says, now it's just a waiting game of getting the two negative results. And trust me, when you're waiting, (laughs) you are really anxious. It, 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 it. Minutes feel like hours of it. Oh, just. You can't even imagine, you know, it. when I got the first uh, negative last Tuesday, when I got the first negative, and I thought, maybe. <laughs> I'm cautiously optimistic, but mm-hmm. maybe I can go this time. And then the second positive came back, and I was very beaten down. I, I felt very lost. I felt very alone. And then over the intercom comes this beautiful beautiful song by Westlife called I'll See You Again which has been my go-to whenever I feel low and missing my husband and they played it they just they said we have this song that we want to play for Helen you know and they didn't have to do that no but that tells you an awful lot about the staff there doesn't it that's right absolutely and that's what I am so grateful for is they made it personal you know, they, they looked after my emotional status quo as well as my physical part, my physical uh, condition. You know, it was an all-encompassing care that I got. Well, it gave you a boost when you really needed it. I mean, because you were there, you had that one negative test, and you thought, God, this is it, we're close, we're close. You could see, yeah. The, yeah. see the finish line, and then you got that positive. <laughs> and, and obviously that takes the wind out of your sails, and they know that because they're, you know, yeah. they, they're caring people. <laughs> And, and that song, I, as I've told you, really lifted your spirits at a time when you really, uh, really needed it. Absolutely. Well, when I first got to the hospital, for the first three days, I don't really remember very much at all. Uh, but I remember one night uh, the nurse came in and she said to me, she says, Helen, she says, is there anything I can do for you to make you feel less isolated and, and lonely? You know, because she knew that I have had always had difficulty with nighttime missing my husband and she said we have the computer in here in the room i can put something on for you what would you like so i told her about westlife and i told her about the song and she put the playlist on for me and i went to sleep with that every night until my daughter heather was able to get my cell phone from cardinal to me (laughs) and i thought to myself how wonderful is that you know like they they just they really wanted to make sure that I was okay emotionally as well as physically. And from a, a caregiver's perspective, from my own caregiving experiences, that is what makes a good caregiver. When you go beyond what you normally have to do, beyond the routine of day-to-day caregiving, you know. And everything I gleaned from my experience as a caregiver, I translated into the care that I gave my husband when he was sick with pulmonary fibrosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to us about, about that element. We're talking, by the way, with Helen Keene, who is uh, just, she's home now after 41 days in the uh, COVID-19 uh, ward at uh, St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, it's a long time. Uh, and, and we talked about how great the staff are there. But how did you maintain contact, I mean, you know, with family and, 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 and others? Because obviously there's <laughs> got to, has to be some restrictions. Well, you, you're given a phone and you're, you're given internet capabilities and you're given a a TV that's that's free you don't have to pay anything for it 
But the phone, the first couple of days, everybody was trying to call it. I think there was about six designated lines for patients to use. So it was a hit and miss. There were sometimes I got through, sometimes I could not get through. And the same for people calling me to find out how I was. So it was pretty restrictive the first week or two. But when Heather brought me my phone, I now had internet, like I had my data on my my iPhone. I could look up stuff. I could phone people. And that's when FaceTiming came in and my grandchildren and my my granddaughter uh, was expecting her third little girl, baby girl, and we didn't know you know, when she was going to, she was very close to delivering and she had her baby while I was in there, a little baby girl, her name's Daisy. Mm. And she also felt the um, impact of having to be in a situation where she was alone. You know, her partner was there with her at the end of the, the, the delivery, but she was on her own and it impacted her tremendously. And my children, I mean, so many um, aspects of your personal life change drastically through something like this, you know, something like this happening. Um, I feel, I think I feel the worst for uh, people out there who have lost loved ones through this pandemic because they couldn't be with their loved ones during those moments where they were letting go. I don't how, know what I would have... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask you how important that was to, to have that family contact, to be able to t- oh. touch base. <laughs> it was it was essential. It was essential. Uh, there's there's physical comfort and there there's um, emotional comfort. Now, the physical comfort you can't get right now because we are being isolated. Mm-hmm. But... The emotional comfort for anybody who has a chance to reach out or FaceTime or or uh, call or encourage or send a, a letter or whatever, you know, it's, it's crucial for emotional stability and, and emotional well-being. You know, it's very important to stay connected to your family. You heard the stories about others that, that are dealing with COVID-19. And, oh, and here you are in isolation. Uh, some of them, sadly, uh, succumbed to the disease. I mean, yes. were, there, were there moments where you were just down in the dumps and thinking, what, what, what about me? What's going to happen to me? There, <laughs> there was one day that I hit a wall, and uh, one of the housekeeping staff had come in, and she had been talking about her, taking her father home and being with him in his last weeks. And when she said he was dying of pulmonary fibrosis, I lost it. I think I cried the whole day. <laughs> you That's know, how you lost your husband. Very, yeah, yeah. And I just thought to myself, my goodness, you know, like, here I am, a little piece of sand on a beach, you know, it's just such a speck in the whole tapestry of this COVID-19 thing that's happening. But you, it's personal for you, and every single person that has had it is dealing with it, is being affected by it, it's personal for them. It's their journey, their story, and it's just as important as anybody else's, you know. The fact that the family were there, whether it's video conferencing or cell phone calls, whatever the case might be, is, is certainly a factor in this. And we were just talking about that low point uh, when you were feeling really, really uh, down mm. emotionally. All right, let me, as, uh, just about out of time, but i got to finish off with, okay, from that emotion, uh, tell me, Helen, about the day you went home. Tell me about getting into the wheelchair, getting packed up. Oh, uh, I think many goodness. of us have probably seen this picture of you going down the hall with the staff, the staff on that ward applauding you, giving you an ovation. I know. I know. It was, un- it was surreal. It was totally, totally surreal. Uh, they had had me in the wheelchair, my suitcase was beside me, and I had no idea. And the nurse came, she says, I'm just going to go get your medication, and I'll come back. And then she put her head through the door. She says, Helen, she says, the staff kind of want to do something special for you, and it might include a videotape of you. Do you think that's okay? I said, sure, fine. I'm going home. I don't mind. You know, it's fine. But when I came out the door and I saw the corridors lined with all of these wonderful, wonderful people who had looked after me so beautifully, 
and they were applauding me. I felt I should have been the one applauding them. And as I was going out, you can't hear it. But behind that mask were a zillion thank yous and oh, yeah. you're the best. And, you know, like my emotions were so high. And when I finally got down to the car, when Heather picked me up, I was in, I was in tears. I was just, I couldn't even talk. And uh, it, was, it was a moment in time. It really was. And I just wish everybody safety and, and uh, all the best. Um, you know, it, it's a journey. It's, it's a transitional period in our lives, and I hope everybody comes through it like I did. Well, we've uh, called them the, the healthcare heroes. Those are the staff members, and you you know them all on a first name basis they that uh, that got yes. you through this. And I know yes. you'll never forget them. No, <laughs> never, ever, no. Helen, we are so glad that you're back home. We're so glad that you're getting over this. I, I know the road oh, is not finished you. yet. There's still work to be done, and yes. and uh, we, you're going to be careful about this, and the, the people that loved you and got you through this are going to continue to keep an eye on you to make yes, sure this happens. Yes. But, boy, we uh, we need to hear great success stories like this, and your determination is, is a big part of this, and the love that you felt from family and friends and, of course, from the staff at St. Joe's as well uh, are all factors in why you are right now where you are and, and, and home instead of in there yes i'm very thankful we're very very thankful too god bless you stay healthy thank please you so okay much. thank you bill thank you great talking much. with you helen Bye-bye. thank you okay. bye-bye Bye. helen keen 41 days in the uh, the unit at st joe's the COVID 19 unit and she's home uh and that's that's the kind of success story we need to hear we've heard some of the other ones sadly and we need to know that uh, because of the great work that's doing and the love of family and the support that happens uh, this is a beast. The people that have survived this this COVID nineteen say it is a beast. It it just saps you, as she said. Just about it. Let's it's like it finds every weakness in your body and attacks that. And uh, it's a testimony to to Helen and her spirit, and uh, and of course the great work at St. Joe's. So congratulations to everybody involved in that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, yesterday, Ontario Premier Doug Ford uh, made some announcements about uh, what's going to be open and what's not. Uh, they call this uh, the first step, of course, in uh, the recovery process, stage one. And uh, a number of different things have been listed. Uh, we've gone to go all through those. But a golf course has come to mind for an awful lot of people and some retail outlets, uh, stores that have uh, street fronts are going to be able to do this. So how's this impacting Hamilton? Paul Johnson is the Director of Emergency Operations Center for the City of Hamilton. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update on what's happening locally. Paul, how are you feeling today? I, I'm doing okay for a rainy Friday, Bill. Thanks. Yeah, I know, I know. What a great way to kick off a summer. It should we shouldn't be surprised? But anyway, we'll we'll get to that. If we're gonna uh, have a bad spring. This is probably the year to have a bad. I spring. guess so. I guess so. But I'm going to tell you though, Paul. I mean, after the uh, the premier's announcement yesterday, uh, I know that folks are lining up at the golf courses right now. We maybe should start at that area from because I know that uh, talking with Barry Forth over at uh, Copetown Woods and a number of other places are open. But we should mention. Right off the top, the city golf courses are not ready to open this weekend. Is that right? Um, so, yeah, we're, we're going to provide some some update to the community about when we'll open our municipal golf courses. Uh, it, it, uh, it won't happen tomorrow. And uh, please don't line up today for golfing anywhere. It is tomorrow. It starts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to, not today, but tomorrow. Uh, but, yeah, it's going to be a great opportunity for uh, for an activity that, quite frankly, can be easily adapted to, uh, uh, you know, to – uh, COVID-19 uh, modifications, and it's an activity that is, is relatively low risk. And it, it goes along with a number of the things. Let's get people out more into open spaces. You've seen Conservation Authority open up uh, some of their uh, uh, areas for walking and, and biking. Our trails are open. The rail trails are open, things like that. Uh, and we'll be looking at actually some of the, the facilities that allow for uh, far more individual sporting activities, tennis and the like, so that uh, again, there won't be amenities open. You won't be able to come and change. You won't be able to do the things that maybe you normally do. But as the next week moves on, there'll be a few more opportunities to get out. So, you know, again, these activities that are relatively low risk and easy to implement some of those uh, distancing and other things um, are, are going to go forward. So golf will look a little different as will everything in our lives for the next number of months. Um, but I think some of these announcements were, um, we had anticipated that the timing was was coming for these because again uh, their risk factor much like going out and enjoying a local park uh, relatively low 
The other element to this, we were talking with Dr. Richardson about this yesterday as well, is 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 we have to adapt to these things. And 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 I know, for instance, the golf courses that are going to open. I'm sure this is going to happen at, at the two Shadow courses and at uh, Kings Forest as well. Uh, I mean, certain amenities you can see you can't go to the clubhouses. Uh, there will be food, I guess, but it's going to be takeout food, and you can order it, but you can't go in there. Uh, the ball washers are going to be removed uh, because, again, that's personal contact and people touching that stuff all day long. So it's going to be a different look. And uh, as, as she told us, and I guess this is one of the, the key takeaways from this, Paul, if you're going to take advantage of this and go to one of the conservation areas or something for a stroll, because it's apparently going to be a nice day tomorrow, it's basically what they're asking people to do is keep moving. Don't congregate and stay in one place at a long time, because that's, uh, as we're told now, where the virus can really transmit itself. You know, go for a walk, but do that. And, and you know, don't linger, don't have a picnic or anything like that, unless it's, you know, your your immediate family who you've been with and stuff like that. So, as you say, it's it's great that they're open, but, they're, you know, we still have to follow the rules that we've been following for the last couple of months. Yeah, and you're 100% right. This is about uh, more opportunities to get out and, and get, obviously, fresh air when the weather is more amenable to that. When it's 20 below and blowing snow, it's, it's, it's harder to enjoy some of these activities. The weather gets better. Uh, the weather gets warmer. More people can feel comfortable getting out and enjoying the spaces, and we want people to do that. Uh, exercise is critically important, and we are at a phase, uh, as Dr. Richardson says, you know, we're at a phase where some of these these tough restrictions that we put in place, which were really about stay at home and stay very close to home, uh, we can start to, you know, to say, yeah, if you want to go down and take take your, you know, drive down and then walk along the beachfront trail, go and do that. But, Bill, to your point, this is about getting out and getting that exercise and getting out and doing that uh, uh, that activity of walking and and that can be with uh, you know someone else from your family it's uh, whatever and you may bump into somebody along the way although bumping in now means of course within two meters but uh, you can say hello but this isn't about stopping and gathering this isn't about parties in the park this isn't about that type, type of activity it's about uh, getting out and, and as you say I, I think it's a great way of putting it you know kind of keep moving uh, and that'll be entirely safe. Uh, you know, Dr. Richardson is, is constantly providing great information to this community. But, you know, when you study where these, these, this transmission of the virus is happening, it's in places or it's through activities where we do what you say, where we're congregating together, uh, probably too close, but also for long periods of time. So lots of transmission, unfortunately, happens in your home uh, between family members. It'll happen when you get together for parties. And that's why we're so uh, doing such a strong enforcement around house parties. These are the kinds of things, uh, weddings and funerals. We heard in you know Washington State about a choir. You know, they got together and unfortunately it was at that time where we were still allowing gatherings. And in Washington State, a choir with a huge number of cases because they came together and sang as a choir. It's those activities that are the higher risk. So, um, you know, I think people can feel very comfortable getting out on a trail uh, when we can and how we can get out on the golf course. Uh, later next week, uh, probably some of our tennis courts will be available. Go out and play tennis. Uh, you can't shake each other's hands. You can't come and use a change room. You can't sit around after and, and uh, reminisce about how good or bad your game is. It's about getting out and doing that activity. Uh, but, uh, you know, keep it moving. I think that's a great line. I might steal that one from you, Bill. It's all yours, Paul. Don't worry. <laughs> what, what about personal protective equipment? Uh, you know, some jurisdictions, uh, more often south of the border, I guess, we haven't seen this much in Ontario, have said, okay, you can do this stuff now, but you got to start wearing face masks. I know that uh, a couple of the grocery stores, Longo's for one, uh, won't let you in the store unless you have gloves and a face mask on. Uh, is, is the city considering that sort of activity as we start to, to congregate and start to mingle again? Um, so not there in terms of saying, you know, mandatory mask work, uh, we're wearing, but certainly we have since, uh, you know, since the, the federal, um, medical officer of health started to talk about it, we've been encouraging people to follow the guidance, which is when you're out in community, particularly when you don't feel you'll be able to keep, uh, that physical separation, uh, or you may be in a situation where you feel it's that little higher risk, uh, sort of inside somewhere and, uh, where, where you, you may be more susceptible. Uh, wear a mask. These are non-medical masks or the cloth masks. There's, there's, you know, these are the things that we should be, uh, we should be doing. So that encouragement has been there for, for a while. It will continue. Um, we're going, we're getting very close. So, uh, by the end of the month, we'll be in front of council and in front of our community, uh, talking about, uh, both the broad public health guidance that, uh, that, that Dr. Richardson will be providing to this, to this community, as well as, uh, plans of how we're, 
uh, looking over the next few months about uh, restarting some city activities and providing a bit of that framework. And uh, there may be some more guidance at that time, but I think that full-on mandatory everywhere, um, that'd be very tough. Um, you know, there are some people who, who can't wear masks uh, for other medical reasons. Uh, it's very tough with children uh, either to keep the mask on or in some cases the recommendations are not for younger children to have that mask on. So uh, we have to be careful that we, uh, you know, mandatory sounds all great, but then there's the what-ifs and the caveats around it. But I think it's very important for people to realize that, uh, you know, the advice for several weeks now has been if you feel you're in a situation where it might be useful to wear a mask, um, put it on. And there's lots of great ways to get those masks uh, these days. Lots of people are selling them and also lots of people are making them. And it's quite effective in both ways. Uh, and what that does also is it makes sure we're not taking any medical stock away from those who actually need the medical grade tested masks, be they surgical, procedural or N95s. Well, it's a fashion statement now in some people's minds. I mean, you know, you can get a mask with your favorite, well, Tiger Cat masks, for one, your favorite sports team, if you like. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I know that sounds a little trite, but, I mean, the fact is we're going to have these around for the longest time. And I, I think, you know, that's one of the things we have to talk about here is that, uh, as I mentioned in my commentary at 810 this morning, uh, we've done a pretty decent job of controlling the spread of the virus, but we haven't defeated the virus. It's still there. It is still there, and, and it's, uh, interesting, you'll know this, Bill, but uh, I've, uh, I've purchased, I've, I've got some masks that are just plain and boring. I've, I've purchased some masks, an officials organization and uh, is doing a, a thing where I've bought cloth masks that have the black and white stripes of the uh, basketball officials. There you uh, but go. They're also, don- they're also donating. For everyone I buy, they donated one to healthcare. So it was a great way of doing it. And I do think that culturally in North America, and certainly uh, we, we're culturally mask wearing is not part of what we do in North America, whereas in other countries, it's, it's also, it's much more cultural in a lot of times. So um, we're trying to find ways, I think, to make this more culturally the norm. And I, I've been quite impressed to see when I go out grocery shopping, uh, when I've been in the pharmacy, uh, that people are wearing masks in, in greater and greater numbers. And your second point is, is absolutely right. Even when we start to talk about reopening, uh, even when we start talking about things coming back online, uh, the, the bottom line is it's all going to come back online differently. And so the way you interact at the golf course, the way you're going to interact in retail outlets, the way you're going to act, uh, interact at your workplace whenever that happens, it's all going to be different because the virus is still with us. We don't have that full-on immunity strategy uh, yet. We don't have a vaccine, those types of things. So everything's going to be a bit different. And I guess some of it is how do you make it more um, you know, culturally acceptable and, quite frankly, maybe a little bit fun? And if uh, turning these things into the latest uh, in a fashion accessory um, and people wearing them safely and doing that, I'm all for it. It's a great way to, uh, you know, to get people into the habit of wearing a mask, which is just not something in North America that we do very often. I'm gratified also, Paul, and I know that uh, you guys talked about this at the uh, city council meeting the other day, uh, about assisting businesses as we start to give them the, the permission to open the doors again. And, and it's going to be different, you know, depending on which kind of business. Uh, as we say, some of the, the retail outlets are going to be opening up, I guess, in the next couple of days across Ontario. Uh, and as I caution them, you know, that means lineups because there's still going to be a, a limit to the number of people that can go into the store and social distancing, et cetera. So uh, you have to be prepared for that. But uh, restaurants, we've talked with a number of people in the restaurant industry, and, and and, that, and, of course, that's one of the you know, great success stories in Hamilton in the last six or seven years is, is this organic growth of these fabulous restaurants we have. And they're itching to get back into work, but it's going to be different. And uh, I, I have to applaud City Council for the idea about the out- outdoor patios that was discussed the other day. It's different. Uh, I know we've had them in the past, but uh, we may see a lot more of these. I, I know you've talked about even street closures at some time. Not so sure we're going to go down that way necessarily. But uh, the city seems to be amenable to saying, okay, what can we do within reason to try to make this happen and to try to help these guys get back into business well yeah and we're going to need all of those great ideas and i know some people have said you know why didn't we jump out you know two weeks ago and do some of the things in in our city we're always monitoring what we have to do in this what i'll call more crisis period of the pandemic but absolutely as we start to reopen business as we start to reopen uh, other uh, uh, amenities within the city we always have to think about well because it's different what are we going to do to support the level of activity um, you know we need to realize that that in in all likelihood to have the proper social distancing the the capacity of many of these uh, we'll use restaurants as a good example restaurants are, uh, is going to be diminished 
Well, some of them were pretty small to begin with. So how do you generate enough revenue? How do you generate enough uh, usage? And if extending patios, at least it gets us through the short term. Um, I wish our climate was a bit more like Arizona or something where we could do this uh, throughout the year. But, uh, you know, how do we help in those short uh, terms is, is great. You know, the mayor has struck uh, the economic uh, recovery task force. I think that's a great opportunity for more ideas to come forward on that front. And then we're also going to be turning our attention to how do we do things to support uh, vulnerable populations and, and activities for children in different ways as well. All the things that we normally do and love uh, will have to take on a different flavor. And so for those activities for children that develop all the skills and, and whether it's in sports or whether it's in, in other activities, how are we going to do those differently? How will we do them well? And I, I do like the fact that people are coming up with creative ideas. And I think where they uh, particularly don't cost a ton of money, uh, those are the things we've got to embrace uh, and, and move forward. Because everybody's going to need some help, regardless of the sector you're in. The last thing I'll say is it's really great. Our public health unit, I know Dr. Richardson was on a call with the chamber members. And uh, our public health unit is there to help as well. Because the other piece is you can read over all these what you should do to keep your business safe. But people will have questions. None of us have gone through this. So how do we have quick communication back from public health? And they want to be there to help businesses uh, make sure their employees feel safe and also make sure the public feels safe. And I think that's that collective effort we're going to need bills to move forward. Paul, there's a concern, obviously, about some of the amenities around town here. Not everybody, even though it's a long weekend, uh, is going to be able to take advantage of the golfing or something else, but they can use neighborhood parks. Uh, to stroll around in. Uh, playground equipment is still a concern. Uh, the stairs up the escarpment are still concerns. How close are we to, to having those open again? Uh, we're still a little ways. Uh, some of those are, are by provincial order, so we'll take yeah. a cue from the province. Um, others of them, uh, we're still a ways away. What we're looking at is the ones where it's pretty easy to make some calls and get things going. Um, you know, as I mentioned about the stairs, there's a couple things at play. Uh, there are gathering points on the stairs. There's landing spots. Uh, it's hard to keep that physical separation. It may be better to, to encourage that as people are going up and down in a line. But the stairs, you know, the up and down parts of the stairs are also pretty close together uh, horizontally as well as vertically. So we've got to look at some of those things. And I would say to people, you know, encourage them. A lot of stuff is going to start to happen for the few things that aren't. Um, you know, find a different outlet. I get it. People want to go to the waterfalls and see that. But, you know, back to your original point, well, the waterfall viewing areas are a perfect place that people gather in groups. And how do we keep the separation? It's narrow paths in. It just doesn't seem to be a great place for put our priority energies and where we'd have to spend a lot of money to make them safe. Again, is that money better spent on some other things? So I would say we're still a little bit of ways away from, from some of those uh, decisions being made. Uh, we're really focusing now on what are some of the bigger things that have more, that, that have good involvement that we can tackle uh, and make some quick decisions on uh, so that people can start to enjoy some different activities. And, you know, with the announcements coming on Tuesday, the more retail is opening as well. A lot of our energy will be there to support retail as they start to open up in, in uh, beyond curbside and actually allowing uh, some some folks to be coming into their shops. There'll be a ton of work on that. So I, uh, as I often say, this reopening is going to be a long process. And I think people uh, just ask for their patience that certain things we just may not get fully too because they're a bit complicated if we want to keep everybody safe we've got to make sure that we don't have to go the other way bill uh, i i know it's always there that we could start to close things back down or clamp things down again i would hate to have to do that so i'd rather personally take a bit of a slower approach and do things in a very measured way i know dr richardson feels the same way than have us go through this up and down uh, a piece of opening and, and potentially then closing parts of the community because uh, we will still see illness. We will still see people get sick. Uh, the good news is most of it will be just uh, an illness, um, but for some, it will become much worse than that, and we've got to keep on top of it. Well, and the other element to that is, is the very important part is uh, we still, I mean, we know when this whole thing started, we said, well, when are we going to lift all these restrictions? Well, when we have 14 days with no new cases. Nobody's reached that yet, so we, we've kind of modified that a little bit. So this is a gamble, really. And, and it's really up to us, I guess, as to how we're going to behave through this. You know, if we're going to follow the, 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 the physical distancing and we're going to use the gloves and the masks when necessary, uh, we've got a pretty good chance of keeping this thing level. If we just go crazy on this and figure out ah, to hell with that, you know, we're over the worst of it, uh, we may be right back into the thick of things. 
Yeah, and, and that's exactly what we don't want. Um, you know, we did we did what we did in March uh, and in April uh, for a reason. It was very successful to completely say, well, okay, let's just not do anything anymore, of course, would be, uh, you know, then why did we do it in March and April? <laughs> because uh, mm-hmm. not much has changed, although there are a number of people and across Canada, tens of thousands of people who have um, been in- infected by the virus. We still don't have enough people that we could say, well, there's there's some kind of, of herd immunity, as it's called. So uh, you're right. Our goal is to do the things that make sense. We also know that there are many, many, many uh, negative effects that happen by the restrictions that have been put into place. And so you have to weigh uh, the, the, the health impacts of all of what we're doing, not just about COVID. So that's why you see the things that are relatively low, low risk, uh, let's start those back up. The things where there can be modifications put in place, let's get those things back up and running. And yes, people will continue to get sick. Yes, we may have uh, pockets of outbreak that we need to deal with. The, the, the goal, though, is to not have that be so overwhelming again that our hospital system would be overwhelmed, that we would have to shut the whole community down, uh, ratchet it down like we have been for the last uh, eight weeks or so. So that's the balance, uh, you know, Bill, and that's why sometimes people go, how come, how come, when can we get it? You know, oh, we're disappointed. You lots of good announcements yesterday by the Premier, but what about this, what about this, what about this? And, and the answer is that's the way it's going to be for a number of weeks is waiting for the right time to take the next step and then monitor what's happened. Uh, because every time we do something that allows more people to be involved in the community and get out into the community, we then need to give it a little bit of time uh, because symptom onset is not instantaneous and then see if we do see an uptick in cases. And if that happens, we may have to, you know, pause things moving forward. So I would just encourage everybody to get in our heads and understand that uh, this is a slow process of doing it so we don't have to go back to some of the more drastic measures that we've taken over the last number of weeks. Amen to that. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Operations. Paul, have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of stuff going on in the political realm. We tend to forget with all the things going on with COVID-19, there is an election coming up in the U.S., a very important election coming up in November. And uh, Donald Trump, of course, is is looking towards his re-election and uh, and dredging up what he can, I guess, against Joe Biden. We all know about the Ukraine situation from uh, from a few months ago now. That seems to have subsided. Now it's Obamagate. What is Obamagate? Well, uh, Trump continues to mention this alleged scandal, but doesn't provide any evidence for it. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, I hope you're well. How are you doing today? I'm fine, and thank you for asking, and I hope everybody's well on your end. We are so far, and uh, just taking it day by day, as I guess most of us are these days. And, and the uh, whole team down there, I hope. Yeah, oh, exactly, exactly. Broadcasting from home again, self-isolation. We're doing the whole thing here, so that's uh, hopefully going to have some dividends. But watching a lot more TV than I usually would have a chance to do, and uh, uh, the sideshow continues in the White House. I mean, it, it's it's incredible. You, you've talked to us a number of times before, Ellie, about how this president loves to be able to pivot and, and, to, and to, to, to change the channel when there's something going on. Uh, it's clearly he doesn't seem to be winning the COVID-19 battle. Uh, so all of a sudden now it's politics, and he's dredging up, well, the Michael Flynn situation, which I guess was the catalyst for this, but uh, he's going after uh, Biden, I guess, through Obama. Right. Well, you and I have talked about this for three and a half years now. Yeah. Uh, what I've been calling the daily chum. You get up at 5 in the morning, you toss stuff out for the media, the media, all the sharks swarm around it, and... Uh, and the president chuckles because it's it's uh, we're watching the circus and we're not watching actually what's happening. So he's the great diverter in that sense. But this is kind of the Daily Chum Plus. Uh, that is, in this case, the great the grand diversion. Don't look at the uh, coronavirus and how I handled it, but let's look at something else. Is also part of building a winning strategy. That is a strategy that can win the election given the fact that uh, the United States is in the midst of a pandemic and uh, that uh, he's getting a lot of um, negative blowback on that you didn't handle it very well. You know, there's now about a million and a half people infected and about 87,000 people have died, and he's urging opening up of the states, which will inevitably, uh, I'm not a doctor, but it seems highly likely from everything we know that this will lead to a number of deaths that uh, 
arguably were were not necessary. So uh, let's talk about something else. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about something very specific. In this case, the Obama Gate, and I'll do my best to explain that briefly. But it's much it's part of a much bigger strategy of we have to find a way to win in November, despite a collapsed economy and a pandemic for which we can get some blame. Let's build on our strength. And our strength is that everybody's against me and the whole deep state and all the media. And we, we have evidence of that in every possible way. And you have to rally around me and you have to go out and vote to protect your president who's been protecting you. And that's kind of the name of the game, I think, going on right now. Yeah, I want to get into the Obamagate thing in just a couple of seconds, but uh, it just seems as if, uh, you know, he, it's 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 going back to what he, he, I guess, worked for him, and that goes all the way back to the Mueller report, the Russian investigation, right. uh, and things of this nature. All of a sudden, it seems as if that's going to be the foundation. Uh, I know that he was always touting the economy. I, I'm, I'm sure that they've, they've had to move away from that, Elliot, because as I say, with the coverage I'm watching, even some of the small-c conservative economists are saying there's not going to be an economic recovery before November. Just don't, don't even think about that. It's just not going to happen that quickly. So all of a sudden, he's got to look at something else, and he figures, well, you know what? I scored some points with the Mueller thing, you know, that it was a hoax, blah, blah, blah. And, and this is the deja vu all over again. And again, it's a, a seamless story that works for, for a lot of people. Uh, he has... Uh... I think a 43% approval rate uh, overall, but he's got a 93% or so approval rate among Republicans, and those are the people who can elect him. That is, the people who elected him last time, he hopes will elect him this time, and everything we're talking about right now feeds into the reinforcing of, you've got to really get out and vote to protect me, because everybody's out to get me. And that's, therefore, Flynn, and the hoax, and... Right now, to come to the story, he's saying there should be people going to jail for 50 years because of the crimes that were committed against me. And the crimes in this case involved uh, the president of the United States, and very prominently, that's Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden. He was sure. there in all of this. And, and um, oh, while we're at it, why not Comey and why not Brennan and why not the other list of people that he feels have been persecuted? He is presenting to his his uh, public, uh, as part of a broad pattern of persecution, Rush Limbaugh has just said, what you're seeing in front of, you know who Rush Limbaugh is, the, oh, yeah. the voice to the conservative base, and a very uh, very powerful voice. Yep. A lot of people listen to him and to Fox, and they're all saying the same thing, that it's hatred of the great president who's done so much for you, and that's why you have to rally around him. But in this circumstance, uh, what they're going back to is with the early days of the Russian investigation. Yes. I, don't, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here. Uh, and suggesting that they were targeting uh, some people, including Michael Flynn and some others. But if, if memory serves, Elliot, they started that investigation long before Donald Trump even declared his candidacy. And if it led to Trump, well, that, that might have been the course of things simply as the investigation went on. But the idea of Russian collusion in, in U.S. politics was raised a long time before Donald Trump won the presidency. Well, certainly the intervention has been yeah. documented. And the, the question of collusion uh, remains in many people's minds an open question or, you know, it, it's, it's been uh, disproved or there's been so many contacts between the Russian camp and the Trump camp that, you know, there was clearly collusion. But that takes you into the, the Mueller investigation, which is all part of the same pattern. That was a hoax. And we should probably talk a bit about Obamagate and what it actually is. It's very technical, and as you say, getting into the weeds on this is very easy, and it, it, even for me, and I follow this stuff closely, but what they're saying is that because the intelligence services noted that there was a Russian massive uh, intervention into American politics, they were tracking it. And that was uh, during the, when Obama was still president and, and the race was on, and uh, it wasn't clear who was going to win it, but there was a lot of evidence that there was activity. And as part of that investigation, they discovered that a certain person, unnamed, redacted. This is through the intelligence community. So they redacted the name and said, we've got evidence that this important person was talking to the Russians. And this is before the election. And then uh, 
that wasn't revealed as to who it was, but Obama, when he met with Trump after the election, said, you, you've got to really watch out for this guy, Flynn. Uh, he's, there's a lot of problems with him, without ever mentioning this particular intelligence. And in fact, the uh, Obama administration kind of sat on the information about Russian interference because I suspect they didn't want to be accused of trying to derail the election. It's a very circular argument. But uh, now the unmasking of who was that person and who knew about it is the Obamagate story. Uh, they've, they've said they have taken action, decisive action by the, the Trump administration to unmask those people who were you know, saying bad things about this great hero, Mike Flynn, who was the first national security advisor, remember, so for a few days. So they're saying this is the conspiracy, this is the Obamagate. They knew stuff, and we, we uh, are now unmasking. Unmasking is the key word here. Uh, who it was who were making these scurrilous charges against this great American hero, Flynn. And the unmasking, then you get into, now we're all learning about it. Well, it's a routine procedure. Uh, the innermost uh, intelligence, uh, uh, the intelligence community covers up the identity for all kinds of reasons, but it is re routinely, upon request, revealed to those who have a need to know it. Uh, the name then becomes available that had been redacted. And that's the, the basis of, of a non-scandal. Which we were told is common practice. As you say, we've all become familiar, I think, with redacted documents from the government now simply because of what's gone on over the last three and a half years. But if, if somebody on the Security Council or the president or the vice president says, well, who is this individual? They, they're, they're allowed to ask that, and, and we're told that the, uh, the intelligence sources routinely give that information as long as it's not, that's not going out to the public, and it by didn't. By the thousand, by the thousand, yeah. we're learning today. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so what happened under the Obama administration is what happened if, 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 with every administration. I mean, you know, if there's an intelligence briefing that goes on, they have the right to find out who's being investigated and, and what the ramifications are, even even though we, the public, may not. And that's a wrinkle that's now uh, we should talk about a little bit, is that it's not released to the public. It's released to those who have a legitimate need to know uh, within the, the government uh, apparatus. But it was leaked by the Republicans <laughs> to, their base, to, to their sources uh, in order to create this story about an Obamagate. But again, I'm going to back out a little from the weeds and say the pattern here, the pattern here is to find... A, a diversion from, and it's a highly successful diversion, uh, apparently on Fox News they spend more time on this than they do on what? The pandemic. And uh, you can meld that in to a broader strategy to win the election by tying it into Mueller and tying it into the deep state and so forth. So it's one more important way. And incidentally, there's another um, element to this, is they've tied it to the name Obama. Mm -hmm. Obama gate. And that's because the Republican polling is showing that the most popular politician in America by far, by far, is Obama. And he, in turn, could be an effective campaigner for Biden. So in order to reduce that, uh, that shine that Obama can bring to the campaign, they tried to slime him at this point to bring him down to reduce him as an effective component of the election campaign. Ultimately, this is a struggle for power in America, and what we're talking about are various elements of it. And we've seen the characterization by the Trump administration. I mean, you know, McConnell, of course, chastised Obama for his, him jumping in about the way that the Trump administration's handled COVID-19, and McConnell suggesting that former presidents shouldn't do that, have never done that. Well, that's not true, of course. Uh, Nicole Wallace on MSNBC, who used to work for George W. Bush, said it happens right. all the time. It routinely happens all the time. If they, and as a matter of fact, George W. Bush spoke up about this too. But that, that's red meat for the, the, the mega people though, isn't it? They hate Obama with a passion. And anytime you can try to, to do something to disparage his reputation, they're going to eat that up. Yes. And, and again, it's, it's not coincidental that this is an important element of the reelection campaign. And so I don't want to mix my metaphors about Daily Chum, but this is a story that has legs potentially. Uh, for the Trump people, and they plan to uh, to see how far they can they can push it. Try to change the the narrative once again, but I mean, uh, while we're dealing with COVID nineteen, and while the the death toll continues to rise and new cases start to rise, 
Uh, is this going to be successful? I mean, obviously the folks at Fox News are running with this because they don't want to talk about COVID-19, uh, nor does Rush Limbaugh. But, uh, you know, when we're talking about swing states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, you know, Wisconsin, places like that, uh, which were pivotal to his election, uh, is, is he trying to reach out to those that same group with this sort of stuff? Well, this is um, here's another part to this. How are you going to run a campaign which for Trump relies on two things, the, the glories of the economy, which, you know, the Democrats say, hey, look, this, the economy just followed the trend line. If you follow it, you know, Obama really put this together, the, the, the good economy, and the trend line just continued in. But uh, the economy, well, that's not, <laughs> that's not at the moment available. But mm-hmm. if, you, if you can get states, let me put it a different way. I think there's a thoughtful way and a thoughtful approach relying on good evidence and how to open up, when to open up, where to open up. But that conversation is now being, is being swamped because the whole conversation has been politicized. So now it's red state versus blue state, and you should open up even though there might be more deaths, and then who gets the blame for that? And that's kind of my big bottom line for everything we're talking about is who's going to get the blame and the republicans are trying to say well you know obama should get the blame or the chinese should get the blame or the democratic uh, governor should get the blame or anybody but us Uh, and meanwhile the democrats are saying where's the leadership you need a you need a national leadership here it isn't only the democrats but it has become highly politicized on a safe way to reopen america Interesting dynamic. We'll see what happens over the uh, course of the weekend. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for this. Enjoy the uh, first long weekend of the summer, such as it is, and uh, we'll talk again soon. I'm sure there'll be new developments. Well, the news never uh, sleeps. It doesn't. It doesn't. Thanks again, Elliot. Take care, please. You too. Elliot Tepper from uh, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.